Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com and find them at FDIC at booth 2540. This podcast is brought to you by Flex 7 from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of enforced technology, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit tenkatafabrics.com slash Flex 7. Flex 7, powered by Enforced Technology, only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. TheFireStore.com, equipping protectors with passion. That's how they operate, and it's how they live. They understand that having the right gear can mean the difference between life and death. Their goal is to get you the gear you need when you need it at prices you can afford. Visit them at FDIC at Boots 110 and 111. Hello, everybody. This is Eric Dryman, Hooks and Hoses podcast with Fire Engineering Network. Coming to you this evening on the uh, 21st of April, right before FDIC. Um, it's just me tonight, no guests. Um, I'm saving a couple of guests for our live podcast that we're going to be doing at FDIC next week. We're going to be recording live next Thursday afternoon. Um, looking forward to the opportunity to record a live show in a real studio instead of my makeshift studio here at home. So if you get the opportunity, uh, either tune in live um, at one o'clock next Thursday, or I'm sure that uh, fire engineering will make the recording available uh, to download or listen to on Spotify um, or any of the other platforms that you may use to listen to podcasts. Uh, let's start out tonight. I got the topic for the night is uh, the six fire ground um, rules to live by. Um, but before we get to that, I want to talk about uh, some things that have been going on um, at work lately. I don't, um, most of you probably know I work for the Indianapolis Fire Department. I'm very proud of the fact that I work for for such a great organization. Um, you know, I had my ups and downs over my career um, and uh, experienced a lot, learned a lot, made some mistakes. Um, took those mistakes and and uh, turned them into positives, made sure I didn't make those mistakes again. But I'm going to talk about um, a fire that I had just not quite a week ago. It's last Sunday. Um, and we got dispatched to the report of an apartment fire at 445 in the morning. Um, so you can imagine, you know, for, you know, not not quite 5 a.m. You get re reports of an apartment fire. 
probably a lot of the same thoughts that ran through my mind are running through your mind right now, and that is uh, high occupancy, uh, middle of the night, probably a lot of people asleep, um, probably a lot of people actually in the apartments, all the standard bread and butter stuff that we would all be thinking about. Um, this was on top of having two other fires earlier in the day. So I was having a pretty good day, three fires in a day um, in the 21st century for most fire departments is a, is a pretty good day. So we get dispatched and here in Indianapolis, um, we send two battalion chiefs on every report of a structure fire outside of a garage. For garages, we just send one, one battalion chief, but uh, anything from a single family residence on up uh, that gets reported as a fire, we send two battalion chiefs. And while we were en route, we got uh, reports of of a working fire. The uh, police were on the scene. They were advising that um, there, in fact, was a fire. So, you know, certainly that, um, you know, ramps up things initially. You know, we like to rely upon our brothers and sisters in blue. And if they say there's a fire, then more than likely there probably is. So as we continued our response, and this response was probably eight to 10 minutes north of our typical response area. So there was a, another battalion chief that was two or three minutes ahead of us. Um, started hearing more and more information that led us to believe that we were, we were coming in on a on a legit fire, we had reports of people uh, calling 911, advising that they were trapped in their apartments. They couldn't get out. They were uh, on their balconies. All the uh, all the kind of things that you would expect to hear from a from you know a report of an apartment fire um, in the middle of the night from a from an apartment building. The first battalion chief gets on the scene. Or I'm sorry, let me back up. The first engine gets on the scene, and um, I'm just going to say that uh, the gentleman's name is Captain Larry Tracy. I didn't ask his permission to use his name in my podcast tonight, but I'm going to because I was very impressed with uh, with the job that he did. Um, he pulled up in front of this three-story apartment building, which ended up being a total of 44 apartments uh, inside this building. He gave his size up. He advised that he had heavy smoke uh, on arrival that they had laid out you know, their, their hose and whatnot. Um, he had multiple people on balconies upon his arrival. He went ahead and established command and uh, proceeded to go to work. And if I had the audio to share, you would say that this guy was probably pulling up to either nothing showing or a trash fire in an alley or a vehicle fire um, with no exposures. I mean, he was just calm, cool, and, and as collected as as you would hope that anyone could be in a textbook situation and he was with in anything but a textbook situation. So they went to work, uh, engine 12, crew of four. They proceeded to start throwing ladders that, you know, the captain had decided that the priority at this fire was, um, was victim rescue. Certainly the, they knew they had a working fire, but at the time they had multiple victims showing on balconies with heavy smoke, uh, pushing out from behind them. So he made the decision, and I think he made the right decision to initiate victim removal. 
So they they started to bring people down ladders. Um, I know one firefighter in particular uh, caught five children who were dropped from, I believe the third floor, could have been the second, but I believe it was the third floor, caught five different kids that were dropped by their mother um, down to this firefighter in order to, to uh, make these rescues. Uh, they brought several people down by ladders. Uh, multi additional companies started to arrive on the scene and and uh, ladder companies, engine companies, so on. And they started to um, attack the fire, continue to remove victims, so on and so forth. First battalion chief gets on the scene, he assumes command and he starts making assignments, starts um, signing different companies to lay additional supply lines different truck companies to do different tasks, uh, forceful entry, um, interior search, other companies to continue to throw ladders, uh, attack, backup attack, so on and so forth, like we typically do. We arrived on the scene to um, quite a bit of activity, and, <laughs> uh, to say the least. Um, we got there, you know, like, like I said earlier, eight to 10 minutes into the incident. Um, initially, uh, I was assigned, I reported to the command post and I was assigned water supply because we had a couple of hydrants that were bad that uh, companies laid out from and, and there was just some uh, some concern about whether or not we were going to have an adequate water supply to, to fight this fire. So I proceeded to work with a couple of engine companies to make sure that they had established a good water supply and they were able to, to supply a, a secondary water source to the primary pumping engine. Um, and we got all that worked out. I go back to the command post and talk to the incident commander, and he assigned me to the Charlie division, which uh, most of you probably are aware the Charlie side is typically the back of the building, uh, the building opera, the, back, the side of the building opposite the street address side. Uh, so I, I reported back there, and at this point, you know, we're probably at least 10, maybe 12, 15 minutes into this fire. And I walked around the back of the building and I, my first view as I'm looking up is we still have six people trapped on balconies with smoke coming out from behind them uh, who need rescued. So these crews proceed, you know, we get a truck crew back there. They proceed to rescue a couple of people and then they rescue a couple more. And then finally they've rescued the last two. Um, in the meantime, we've got a victim down on the ground who jumped from um, from the second or third floor. I don't recall at this point, but um, they had significant injuries that, that needed to be addressed. So we got EMS to them and additional fire personnel. Um, all in all, the fire took approximately an hour to bring under control. We ended up with fire on all three floors of this building. Uh, I'm not sure what the cause is yet not sure if it was natural or intentional or something in between uh, that still remains to be uh, determined but I, I just felt that it was important to share this incident with you because no matter how well prepared we think we are there's going to be that incident that is going to overwhelm you that that uh, that you want to you want to think you're ready for that you want to think you're going to do everything right but um, it's only by the grace of God and, and good luck that sometimes um, these things turn out the way they do, regardless of how well we train. Um, 
and not because of anything necessarily that I did at the fire, but but as a result of the efforts of all the firefighters and company officers and other chief officers that were there uh, that night, we ended up rescuing 30 people, either from the interior or over ground ladders and got them out safely. Uh, there were a total of nine uh, occupants who ended up being transported several of which were uh, several of whom were in serious condition when they left the scene but ultimately um, have had a recovery unfortunately we did have one fatality a victim that was found um, down in a hallway that despite the best efforts of uh, the firefighters to get that individual out once they got got that individual out it was uh, very quickly determined that um, based upon the condition of that victim and um, the assessment of the paramedics on the scene that that victim um, was non non-revivable so the decision was made not to work that patient and continue to focus on anyone else who may still be trapped inside and needed to be rescued um, so you know that's a very short uh, condensed version of what happened um, all i can say is that you know i've been doing this for 33 years most of it is a career firefighter. Um, some of it is a volunteer firefighter. And I've seen a lot of crazy things in my life. And that was a fire that um, really, I wouldn't say I wasn't prepared for it, but that was a once in a career fire. You know, I, most firefighters and most fire departments, if they go to a fire and they, they find a victim and they get that victim out, that's, that's an unusual incident in this day and age. Not, not, not to take away from anybody because it happens. I've been to, you know, several fires where people have been rescued over my career. Um, but I can certainly tell you that I've never been to a fire where 30 people uh, walked away from that fire with no injuries. Um, you know, despite the property loss, despite things that, that may or may not be able to be replaced, you know, people displaced and having to find new places to stay and all that sort of stuff. That's all unfortunate. But at the end of the day, uh, those people are still here today because of the efforts of the Indianapolis Fire Department. And I just wanted to uh, acknowledge that, take a little bit of uh, time of personal privilege to, to talk about that fire. And just um, as we get into these, these six um, rules to live by, these six fire ground rules to live by, um, you know, I'd like to think that that these six rules, they may not always solve our problems, but as we go through our careers, you know, if we can remember these six things or, or dwell on these six things from time to time, I think that uh, we'll all have a much better career, a much more successful career, and um, certainly provide the best outcome for the, the citizens we serve. So it's, it's important. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and shift gears now and get into the six um, fire ground rules to live by. And it's important that when we honestly apply um, these rules um, consistently and uh, frequently, um, most of our incidents, our fire incidents, are going to be much easier to handle. Um, are they going to work in, in every incident? Absolutely not. You know, last week or last Sunday night was a perfect example of that. We followed all of these six fire ground rules, but there had to be a whole lot of uh, uh, decisions made in the heat of the moment that uh, may or may not have 
totally complied with uh, with these six rules. But at the end of the night, you know, these six rules, in my opinion, are going to handle the vast majority of incidents we're going to go to, um, you know, specifically fire incidents, which is, uh, you know, we go to a lot of other runs. We go to a lot of medical runs. We go to a lot of car wrecks. Um, you name it, we go to it. But at the end of the day, um, you know, the one of the primary words in the title of our organization is fire department. Um, it's not, um, you know, rescue department. It's not uh, extrication department. It's not uh, trench rescue department. It's fire department. Certainly we do all those other things. And for the most part, we do them very well. But the community, when they think, when they think about first responders, particularly those people that are arriving in uh, the big red trucks or big yellow trucks or whatever color your fire trucks are, um, they think about people wearing fire gear and SCBA, stretching hose, raising ladders, going in, putting out a fire, finding people that are in distress and need, need removed and getting that done. So um, I think it's important to dwell on these is, um, again, you know, in this day and age, fires are um, not what they used to be. Um, we don't get them as often for the most part. Um, so when we do get them, we need to be prepared for them. And, and I think these six rules will help us in our thought process to be better prepared as we as we uh, are faced with these challenges and, and have to respond to these incidents. So the first rule is company officers are the backbone of the fire department. And it doesn't matter whether you have corporal sergeants, lieutenants, captains, whatever you call them, whether you have multiple ranks of company officers or a single rank, um, the company officer is going to make or break a crew, okay? Uh, the crew is going to, and by crew, I mean it could be one firefighter. If you're unfortunate enough to work in an organization where you have a, an officer and an engineer responding on your apparatus, or if you're as fortunate as some organizations that have four or five or six people responding on your apparatus, those individuals who are being supervised by that company officer are going to adopt the attitude and the personality of the company officer as a general rule. So if the company officer is a gung-ho, char you know, hard charger, wants to train, wants to be prepared, uh, wants to be, wants to make the difference at every incident, then those people that work for that company officer are going to adapt that attitude. And those who decide that either that company officer is too over the top or likes to train too much um, or, you know, they just aren't into what the company officer is selling, then those folks are going to move on and you're going to get somebody to take their place who is going to eventually adopt that company officer's attitude. And the company officer can, can build a very dependable, very efficient crew of firefighters who are going to perform their job extremely well. So when we talk about a company officer, there's a couple of things and and whether you're a lieutenant captain, whatever your, your rank is, as a company officer, and the higher in the organization you go, the more this this little description holds true. Those two or three or four firefighters that are riding on your fire apparatus with you don't do not work for you. You work for them. The company officer's responsibility is to take care of their people. And that means not only that they watch out for them and keep them out of trouble 
and make sure that they follow policies and procedures and do the things that need to be done around the firehouse and on emergency scenes. But it's also the company officer's responsibility to make sure that those firefighters operate in a safe manner, not only for the benefit of the community, but for the benefit of those firefighters' families who expect them to come home at the end of a shift or after a run is over, um, you know, what, whatever the case might be, whether you're career or volunteer, it doesn't matter. The company officer's responsibility is to the firefighters that they're responding with. Certainly the firefighters are subordinate to the company officer. And if the company officer gives an order, you know, you expect your firefighters to follow it. And if the company officer says, we're going to do this or that, or we're going to have training, or we're going to go do inspections, or you need to be in uniform by, you know, such such as time, all those things should certainly be complied with. But at the end of the day, the company officer's responsibility is first and foremost to the public and secondary, secondarily to the firefighters that they work with. So it's important to remember that it's for those of you that either are company officers or aspire to be company officers. On top of that, as a company officer, you're typically gonna be the initial incident commander. So you're gonna be required to give a size up. You're gonna be required to um, establish the initial incident action plan that needs to be implemented um, at an emergency scene. And I know we're talking about fires this evening, but it could be at anything, whether it's a heart attack or a, a car wreck with entrapment, chemical spill, whatever the case might be. As a company officer, you need to be prepared to make those decisions and at least establish a first line of decision-making and authority on the scene in order to keep that incident from getting out of control and people freelancing and uh, the incident not, you know, your, your role as the company officer initially, whether you're the incident commander or just one of the early arriving company officers is to try and stabilize that incident as fast as you can. So in order to do that, you have to be able to think on your feet. We, we can run through scenarios. We can take all the classes in the world, the strategy and Texas classes, smoke reading classes, fire officer classes, uh, you know, you name a class, we can take it, but there is certainly no way that we can cover every scenario of every incident that you're going to be presented with over the course of your career. And that requires you to be able to think on your feet and take what you have learned in a classroom or take what you have experienced on different emergency scenes and apply it to the scene that is directly in front of you. And it's important to be able to adapt. So I, you know, I, I'm not going to beat that anymore, but it's important to understand that you have to be able to think on your feet and be able to make decisions quickly. You must also be capable of performing tasks while you're in command. Anybody that's been a company officer on an engine company knows that typically the lieutenant or captain that's riding on an engine company, and I've heard multiple people say it before, is they're nothing more, they, they consider themselves nothing more than a glorified hose humper. And to a certain degree, that is correct. You know, if you're the backup, if you're backing up your nozzle firefighter, which most of us are because we don't have five and six people on a engine company, you're forced because of the, the staffing level that your organization is operating under, you're forced to not only be the, potentially the in, initial incident commander or at least the decision maker for your company, you're also forced to have to perform a physical task. And that can be challenging. 
but it's important to understand that you still have to be capable of doing both. You have to be capable of physically exerting yourself, helping to get that line in operation or help to raise that ladder or force that door, whatever you're doing. And at the same time, you still have to maintain your wits enough to be able to make decisions and in, in need pass out orders to other companies as they come in about what needs to be accomplished. You know, on top of that, you have to be able to prioritize the fire ground needs. You know, the, the fire the other night, to go back to it for a second, you know, typically the first engine on a scene for us is stretching the initial attack line and the second engine coming in is stretching a backup line. Well, at that particular incident, that was not uh, the right decision. We had, you know, because of the number of people who needed to be rescued, uh, cert certainly, and we'll get into this in a little bit, you know, with some of the later uh, rules, fire ground rules, um, getting that first line in operation and, and, and initiating a uh, fire attack is one of the paramount rules that we'll talk about here in a little bit. But there are going to be exceptions to that rule, and, and the fire the other night was, was one of those examples. So it's important to be able to recognize and prioritize what needs to be done, um, regardless of what your standard department rules are for what the first engine, second engine does, what your writing assignment says that you should grab when you get out of the apparatus. Um, all those things for the most part are gonna work in the majority of the situations, but you need to be prepared that if the company officer decides that we're gonna deviate from what we normally do, um, you know, not only does the company officer need to be prepared to make that decision, but you as firefighters need, need to be prepared to adapt and, and assume a new role, um, you know, without a pause or a hesitation. The second rule is, and this kind of, you know, after everything I just said, nothing should deter uh, from stretching and operating uh, the first hand line to the seat of the fire. And again, we're talking about in general terms, for the vast majority of the times, that is the best thing we can do for the community for fire victims, to minimize property loss, you name it. The first hand line in operation, getting that first hand line to the seat of the fire, putting the fire out is gonna do the most good, the most amount of time. But there are gonna be exceptions as I've already mentioned. I'm not gonna go back and talk about it again, but as a general rule, we've got to get that first line in operation. And I don't care whether it's a thousand square foot, uh, single family residence, or it's a 15 story, um, two or 250 unit apartment building in a downtown metropolitan area, the goal needs to be to get that first hand line in operation. And if that means that you're on a ladder company and the engine company's having trouble getting their hand line stretched, or you're walking up from the street to the front yard, to the front door, and you notice that the hose needs to be flaked out a little more, or there's a kink that you can adjust very quickly uh, without you know, taking away too much from your primary responsibilities, then that should be your goal. Uh, getting that first line in operation has to be um, the thing that we focus on the most. And I've been to several fires over my career and, and you know, I'd be lying if I said that we don't always wanna be the first person through the door. I don't know a firefighter that's worth carrying to a fire that doesn't wanna be first in on a good working fire. We all do, but we need to be mindful of the fact that, you know, there's nothing wrong with having pride and wanting to be aggressive and wanting to get the job done and get in there and 
get first water and initiate a primary search and, and all those things, they're all important. But at the end of the day, we have to be able to balance our ego and our self-gratification with what's best for the customer, what's best for the community. That citizen whose home is on fire or that citizen who is trapped inside the burning building and needs rescued. If we put that fire out, everything else gets better. And I don't think there's, I, I would argue that to my, to my grave. I don't care, you know, as a general rule, um, you know, not with, notwithstanding the what ifs or yeah buts or, you know, some of the other stuff that we can all throw out there. Um, as a general rule, nothing is going to make that fire ground safer, faster than putting that fire out. So regardless of whether you're on an engine or a ladder or an ambulance or you're a battalion chief or you're a battalion aide, it doesn't matter. We have to do as collectively as a fire ground team, get that first line stretched and in operation. If we get that line stretched and in operation, we're going to stabilize the incident. And we all know what happens when we put water on the fire. Well, the first thing we can all say is that if we put water on the fire, we're cooling the atmosphere. I think everybody would agree. We're taking heat out of that atmosphere. The other thing we're doing is we're causing all those fire gases that are being produced to stop. And after they stop, typically what happens to those fire gases is they start to lift and they start to contract. Okay. You've all seen, you've probably all seen a situation where you've had a balloon that was in a warm environment and maybe you took it outside, you know, maybe you picked up some balloons for a party at a party store and on a winter day and you put them in your car and uh, the car wasn't as warm as the environment that you picked them up from, or you take a balloon that was inside at a party and you walk outside with it. Um, what happens to that balloon? The balloon shrinks, right? Or you've had a empty water bottle or an empty soda bottle, put the cap back on it and you come back, you know, maybe you left it outside on the deck overnight or something like that, or you left it in your car, um, who knows, but you, you come out the next morning or later in the day when the temperatures have cooled off and what does that bottle look like, right? The bottle, the sides are sucked in, the balloon has shrank, it's not floating as high as it was before on the string, now it's down at your waist level or it's on the ground well, that's all because the atmosphere inside that that enclosed container, whether it was a balloon or a bottle or whatever it is, constricted because the temperature was reduced. So if you take that real world, real world example that we've probably all experienced in one form or another, and you take it to the fire ground, the same thing happens when we spray water into a hot environment. Those gases that are hot and expanding, they shrink just like that balloon or that water bottle, okay? So it's important for us to understand not only is spraying water, putting the fire out, but it's also making that environment inside for not only us, but particularly for the fire victim because they don't have the benefit of fire gear and SCBA. It's making the environment inside better for them. So it's important for, for you to remember that. The last takeaway from that fire ground rule two with getting that first line in operation um, is that we all know, you know, we were all, most of you, if not all of you were probably taught that 
you know, fire doubles every minute or every two minutes or whatever you you learned in your firefighter one and two class. And we know that that is no longer the case. We know that the heat release rate and the fire growth in fires today is so much faster than, than we ever realized because of the amount of synthetics that are present on the modern fire ground. So it's important for us to realize and understand that not only is that one to two minute delay or 30 second delay, you know, you pick the time frame doesn't really matter because the fact, the, the, the fact at the end of the day is that even a 30 second or a one minute delay can have a tremendous impact on the temperatures and the, um, the environment inside of a burning building, even uh, far removed from that seat of the fire. You know, it could be a couple of three or four or five rooms over or a floor up um, from the seat of the fire. Just, you know, a very short delay in knocking that fire back and preventing it from continuing to grow can have a significant impact on the, uh, the fire environment for our fire victims and the amount of property loss and the amount of overall property damage that's done um, on a fire ground. Moving on to fire ground uh, rule three, uh, <clears throat> it kind of piggybacks onto the previous rule, which is the most efficient and effective fire attack occurs when groups of firefighters are assigned to perform specific and engine truck company operations at the same time. So I say it piggybacks on, it does a little bit. We talk a little bit more about fire attack and the importance of the fire attack, but this kind of builds it out a little bit more. Certainly the engine gets all the glory because they're the ones that put the fire out. But to look, but to say that fire attack is, is solely isolated to stretching and blowing the first hand line would be um, not only inaccurate, but also disrespectful to all the other tasks that have to be accomplished on the fire ground. Um, you know, there's forcible entry, there's search, there's ventilation, there's laddering, all the different things that need to take place um, in addition to the stretching of that initial hand line. All those things collectively are what is going to make the fire ground the most successful. Uh, you know, we, we can go back and forth and with the banter and the, and the joking and everything else about the engine does this and the truck sucks or the trucks, you know, if it wasn't for the truck, the engine wouldn't be able to do their job. You know, we can go back and forth about all those things around the kitchen table or in the bay at the firehouse. That's all good, you know, good fun. And, and I'm, I'm one of the first people that likes to, likes to join in on that stuff and, uh, and uh, call out different aspects of who does what and which makes the most, most impact on the fire ground. But at the end of the day, you know, the goal should be to be able to perform multiple tasks simultaneously but in order to perform multiple tasks simultaneously you have to have multiple people okay and i realized that in the for for many of you who listen to this podcast that's not an option some of you it is and for those of you who are fortunate enough to have um, dedicated engine and ladder companies or squad companies or rescue companies or whatever else you call them that's great but in this day and age, those organizations are few and far between. The vast majority of the United States Fire Service is made up of volunteer firefighters. And in many instances, you don't know how many people you're gonna get showing up on a fire ground. Uh, but we do know that the more 
tasks that we can divide among people, the better the outcome for the community and for the structure and everything else. So if we can't do that, if we can't assign multiple tasks to several different people, then we have to prioritize. We have to decide what can we do with the limited amount of people that we have present to provide the most good for the greatest number of people. Uh, you know, whether that is, as in the case of the fire the other night um, that I talked about earlier, you know, we had a, a four person engine crew who rolled up to a fire expecting to lay out a supply line, stretch a hand line and advance on a fire in, the, in an apartment. They pulled up and they had a whole bunch of people hanging out of windows. So they had to, that company officer had to decide, I've got four people. Essentially I have three because one of those firefighters is the engineer who's gonna remain outside to make sure that he has the supply line connected to his pumper. Um, you know, he's helping to um, get the hand lines flaked out, helping to do whatever else needs to be done on the exterior. So down, now you're down to three firefighters and you have, I don't know how many people on balconies in immediate need of rescue. Okay, so in that instance, there were there, you didn't have the number of people to multitask. So the decision was made: we're going to focus on the primary tasks at hand, which is getting them, getting as many people down to the ground and safely removed from the structure as we can. And then once more people arrived on the scene, that's when the multitasking took place. We had people stretching hand lines. We had people raising ladders to balconies. We had people forcing entry and making entry into the structure to perform primary searches. Um, we had additional crews uh, on scene ready to receive patients when they came out, um, both fire and EMS on the scene. So um, the ideal scenario is to multitask, but in the absence of enough people, you're gonna have to prioritize and decide which tasks you know, are, are the most imminent or the most important, and then balance that with the number of people you have. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, uh, it's a, you're walking on a, on a razor's edge. In, in some instances, you got to decide, do I do what I've always done? Or do I have to uh, call an audible and uh, deviate from what we would typically do in order to prioritize what needs to be done? Number four, going to beat on the hand line again and for those of you that know me in any form or fashion know that I'm not a big engine guy but I will say that for the most part um, you know truck companies don't put fires out engines do and for all the reasons that I've mentioned earlier with the the change in temperature the change in the atmosphere, so on and so forth, the fire growing faster than it's ever grown before. Um, truck companies, as a general rule, can't improve that situation. It takes the engine company. So, you know, it's important to get that hand line in place, operate it effectively. Um, we don't, I'm not going to get into the smooth bore versus fog debate, um, you know, all the different things that go into it. You know, there's all these different hose lines now. We've got, you know, true uh, inside diameter versus uh, 
the manufacturer says it's certain it's a certain inside diameter all those different things you know, we go on and on about just hose hose and nozzles and engine company operations for hours and hours and hours but at the end of the day we got to put the most amount of water on the fire in the shortest amount of time possible okay so how are we going to accomplish that well it, it involves it does involve the truck company um, but to a lesser degree and by that i mean that if we've got an, an engine crew that is stretching a hand line or maybe a engine crew and a couple of firefighters off an ambulance or a couple of firefighters off a squad or the the second engine that's coming in is helping the first engine get their hand line um, stretched appropriately and and maybe they needed to add a length or maybe there was some other issue about access whatever the case might be getting that hand line stretched while all that is taking place what should the truck company be doing well first and foremost they need to get access into that structure for the engine company right because if you got a hand line charged at the front door but you can't get in then what good is that so um you know the proper placement the rapid placement of that hand line although we we predominantly consider that an engine company function there is a truck company component to it you need to be good at forcible entry you need to be good at apparatus placement um, you need to be good at tool selection all those sorts of things you know as a truck company are going to play into how quickly we can get that hand line into operation even though we're not physically on that engine arriving at the scene so it's important to remember that um, another thing and i've seen this and it, it it does frustrate me again it goes back to for the most part our aggressive nature you know regardless of what organization you work in across the country is you know you get two engines that pull up maybe one arrives a few few seconds or 30 seconds ahead of the second engine but you've got two engines competing to see who can get their hand line to the front door first and while i'm all for aggressiveness i think that's something to be proud of i, I think that's something that that uh, we should all strive for is to be aggressive and to be efficient at our jobs at the end of the day what makes more sense two guys struggling on one hand line and two guys struggling on another hand line where it takes them both a minute to a minute and a half to get their hand line stretched or four guys operating together as a team to get that first hand line stretched in 30 seconds or 45 seconds and making it in inside to start applying water well day in and day out almost every time without fault without exception i'm going to say that the four firefighters working collaboratively to get the first hand line to the seat of the fire is going to do more good than two firefighters on one line and two firefighters on another line racing each other through the front yard just to see who can get first water and get the opportunity to put that fire out because at the end of the day you know we let our we can let our egos get in the way sometimes and take away from the overall goal of ourselves as a fire service which is to do the most good in the shortest amount of time for the most people and two companies racing and uh, challenging one another to see who can get their hand line to the front door first in most instances is not going to be the best case scenario for the community for the people we serve focusing on getting that first hand line in, in operation and flowing water 
on the fire so we can cool that atmosphere, give our citizens the best chance possible of survival if they're still trapped inside, and ultimately knock that fire down and put it out to minimize the amount of property loss that takes place. That is what is in the best interest of the people that were there to protect and serve, not who can get water, uh, get their hand line stretched the fastest and get to the seat of the fire first, right? Even though we all know that we would prefer to be the first per first hand line through the door rather than the second. I get that. I'm the same way. But at the end of the day, sometimes you got to check your ego and say, hey, you know, is this is this just because I want to beat engine one in, I'm on engine two, I want to beat engine one into their fire? Or do you take a pause and say, you know, I would really like to beat engine one in, and at the end of the end of the day, I'm pretty sure we could. But on the other hand, if we're both stretching our hand lines simultaneously, neither one of us is going to get in there as fast as we could if we all focused on getting one hand line in there as quick as possible. So kind of running on about that, but but you know, regardless of my personal um, career experiences and uh where I like to spend my time as a firefighter and a company officer, um, I, I do think it's important to to remember that at the end of the day, we got to get that first line in operation. So rule five, uh, we've got to have proper staffing, proper training, and proper equipment. Some of those things we have influence over, some we don't, okay? Staffing, let's be honest. We're going to, you know, I mean, some labor organizations and some Firefighting organizations have a better relationship with their administrations and their city government than others, or their you know, township government, county government, whatever kind of organization you work in. So I'm not going to say that we don't have any influence over staffing because to a certain degree, some organizations do. But at the same time, a lot of organizations, they get what they get from a from a personnel standpoint. Okay. If your department says we're going to staff our apparatus for three people, you can beg, borrow, and steal and and plead and you know go to your councils and go to your mayor and go to your chief and all those other things and advocate for more people. But at the end of the day, you've got to be prepared to respond with what you have. Even if even if the you know a year from now, two years from now, 10 years from now, you get to the staffing levels you want. You're going to go on a whole lot of runs between now and then so you can't just say well we can't do what we want to do because we don't have the number of personnel we need um, we can't do what we want to do because we don't have the equipment that we need okay i i don't disagree and and many of you are probably in that boat um, but at the end of the day that's not an excuse not to be prepared to do your job and that doesn't give you the excuse not to be not to train and not provide the best service that you're capable of providing with the personnel and the equipment that you have available to you. Okay. It's very easy to sit back on your, on your hands in a recliner and say, well, you know, we would really like to be a better fire department, but our department won't give us the number of people we need and they won't give us the number, you know, the, the type of apparatus we want, or they won't give us the hose we want or whatever the case might be. And, I don't disagree that in some circumstances, maybe you could be better. Uh, you probably would be better, but at the end of the day, that's not an excuse for not doing the best job possible with the personnel and the equipment that you have at your disposal at that time, because the community and as at a whole as a whole, 
doesn't care whether you show up with three people or five people on your first due engine. They don't care whether you're carrying the, the most advanced um, hose manufactured today or the best nozzles manufactured today, or you have the best, you know, whatever you, you name a piece of equipment, the community doesn't care because when they dial 911, they expect us to be able to solve their problem. So regardless of the situation that you're presented with, there's one thing that particularly as a company officer that you have complete and utter control over, and that is your training. So if, if you've got equipment that you don't feel as, is as advanced or as modern as it should be, or if you've got a staffing level that you don't feel is as adequate as it should be, then you as a company officer need to do your part and come up with ways to do the most with the staffing and the equipment that you have at your disposal. Doesn't mean you're gonna be able to solve every problem, but you're gonna be able to solve a whole hell of a lot more problems with what you have available to you if you prepare to deal with those circumstances with the staffing and the equipment that you have, rather than bitching about it or complaining about it and saying, well, this, you know, we can't do this, or we could be so much better if only, because when somebody calls 911, they don't care about the if only, right? Because when the bell goes off, suddenly the city hall is not going to go and say, okay, well, the bells just went off. We're going to give you two more firefighters and, and, and a brand new million dollar pumper, right? You're going to roll out the door with what you got, which means that you as a company officer, you as a firefighter, you as a, a, a chauffeur, um, engineer, whatever you call your drivers, um, you need to be prepared to do the most good with the equipment and the staffing that you have that, at your disposal. So, you know, it, it's just important to understand that we can, you know, we can wish and hope and dream all we want, but at the end of the day, we've got to be prepared to do what needs to be done with what we have. So just, just remember that, you know, we, we could all be better off in a lot of different ways, but at the end of the day, it's important to understand that we've got to get the job done regardless of uh, the cards we're dealt. It's also important to understand that, and I've seen this passed around, and I think for the most part, it's kind of died out, but it, there was there was a push at one point in time, you know, we started doing survivability profiles, and, um, and I'm not knocking survivability profiles. I think they have their place, but they're not, they're not carved in stone, they're not the, the be all, do all, end all. Certainly if, you know, if you roll up on a certain situation where you've got uh, fire conditions that, that just say, hey, if there's somebody in there, they're gone, okay, I, I get that. So, but at the end of the day, that's not an excuse um, to not do our job simply for the benefit of the firefighters. Certainly as a chief officer and, and when I was a company officer, the last thing in the world that I wanted to do was have to go home at the end of a shift with fewer people than I started that shift with, or go to a firefighter's funeral that died at an incident that I was either supervising them as a company officer or I was in charge of as an incident commander. So I'm not taken away from that. We have a responsibility to our people, but at the end of this, at the end of the day, we all raised our right hand and said, I'm going to put myself between the community and danger. Okay. And when you made that, when you took that oath or you made that oath, 
um, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. And that means that we're going to do as much as humanly possible to make sure that the citizens who are paying our salaries or paying for our firehouses or our fire apparatus or anything else that, you know, that comes along with being a member of a fire fire department, you know, they expect us to do everything we can to make sure that they have the best outcome, even if that means we get hurt or worse. Okay. So we can do our best to make the job safe. And I will always say that there are the, the, the single best way that we can make this job safe is to train and prepare. If we train to know how to identify where a fire is, um, how to read smoke, how to make sound decisions at an incident, then barring some unforeseen circumstance or some unusual situation, we're going to have a good outcome. Can we guarantee that with 100% certainty? Absolutely not. There are gonna be instances that are beyond our control or things that are gonna happen that we are unaware of. They're gonna ultimately result in bad things happening. But at the end of the day, regardless of what kind of fire gear you have, how good your SCBAs are, how much money your organization spends on fire apparatus and equipment, those are all great things. And those are certainly all things that we should strive for and aspire for in our fire organization. But at the end of the day, you can have the best equipment best turnout gear, the best SCBA, but if you're a poorly trained firefighter or if you think you know it all and you've never been to an incident that you couldn't figure out, then you're your own worst enemy because there's gonna become a time when you're gonna get jammed up and one of your brothers or sisters is gonna come and try and rescue you and hopefully they get you out. But at the end of the day, you not being prepared is putting everybody around you potentially in danger. So it's important to understand that. It's not just about the community, it's about us as firefighters and us as coworkers and us as department members to be prepared and to train and do our best to minimize the risk that we're presented with when we go on these emergency runs. The last part of this, uh, of the six fire ground rules is, um, we basically do two things as a fire service that are going to impact uh, directly the fire and the fire ground. Okay. Um, and those two things are applying water and ventilation. Okay. When you think about what we do on the fire ground, there's, there's certainly a lot of things we do. We throw ladders, we ventilate, or we force entry, we search, we do salvage and overhaul. And those are all important. Um, tasks that have to be accomplished pretty much at every fire. But at the end of the day, there are two things that we as firefighters do that dramatically affect the fire behavior and the fire ground as a, as a general rule. And those are applying water and ventilation. I'm sure you've all been to fires where ventilation was done inappropriately or wasn't coordinated with the attack group, you know, maybe somebody broke a window that that uh, and the the attack crew had trouble with uh, getting water, or you took a window thinking that that was the window that needed to be broke, uh, 
that was closest to the fire and, and after you broke it, you realized that you broke the wrong window and rather than um, making the fire, you know, getting, you know, allowing smoke to, to exit the structure and the attack crew to be able to make that push and give all that expanding steam and, and everything else a place to go, you realize that, oh crap, I broke the wrong window and and now the, the fire's going somewhere in the structure that it wasn't at before. You've drawn the fire to an area that, that it wasn't present in before. Um, on the engine side, you know, the, the primary role of the engine company, as everybody knows, is to get water on the fire. And so ventilation and water application are the two single most important things that we can do at a fire. Um, if you've ever watched any videos of actual fire ground scenes where there's been, you know, in, in most of these incidents, you're going to be able to get a better feel for them. You're going to see a lot more of them in larger departments. Simply that's because of the amount of staffing and the amount of fires that larger urban departments go to. But you will see, and I've, I've actually in one of my programs that I teach around the country, I have a video of, of a fire in New York City. Um, where the outside vent man from a truck company is, he climbs the fire escape several floors above the street and is standing by on that fire escape for a handful of minutes. I don't know exactly how long, but, you know, for a lot of us, you know, and, and it's pretty, pretty obvious that the fire escape landing that he is on is right next to the windows of the apartment that's on fire based on the, the smoke conditions and things that you can see from the outside. And that guy stood there for an extended period of time because he was waiting to hear water from the engine company hitting inside that apartment uh, bedroom or living room, wherever the fire was. He was waiting to hear that fire bouncing off the ceiling and the walls before he took that glass. And the reason for that was we all know that in, in many instances, particularly in a, in a large structure, you know, in, in that case, it was a occupied multiple dwelling, uh, several stories high. He was able to make it up, up the fire escape a heck of a lot faster than the engine crew could make it up from the street, stretching a two and a half inch hand line. And I would argue that even if you have a building with standpipes where you're hooking up to a standpipe on the fire below, if you have, fire escapes on the exterior or in the absence of fire escapes, if you have an aerial ladder uh, and you're able to get that aerial ladder up to the fire floor, if you break that glass before the engine company is ready to apply water to that fire apartment, you're going to make that fire worse. And you're going to, you know, if there's, if there's anybody still alive in that apartment or in the hallway um, outside that apartment and that apartment door is open, you break that glass and there's a pretty good chance that you just killed somebody. So the importance of ventilation, coordinating that ventilation with the attack crew cannot be overemphasized. In many instances, the, the reason we get away with it, with, with vertical ventilation in particular, horizontal is a different animal because you can horizontally ventilate much faster than you can vertically. But you know, we could send crews to the roof and have a crew stretching a hand line through the front door at the same time and simply because of the additional uh, steps that have to take place to throw a ladder, 
potentially extend the ladder, get to the roof, sound the roof, pick out where you're going to cut your hole. Um, you know, those things take place and the ventilation actually takes place after the fire attack, not because we planned it that way. It just took the ventilation crew a little bit longer to get the job done than it did the attack crew because the attack crew had a straight shot through the front door to the seat of the fire while the ventilation crew had to carry a ladder up, raise it, so on and so forth, as I just mentioned. So, you know, we get away with this stuff a lot of times simply because of the way things shake out on the fire ground. But when we're presented with a situation where we've got, you know, we're gonna initiate horizontal ventilation, either in, in absence of vertical ventilation or prior to vertical ventilation, it's important to understand the, the need to delay that sometimes rather than just, hey, I'm a firefighter, I've got a tool in my hand, I'm gonna break some glass because we all know glass is cheap. And my instructor told me that glass is cheap and take glass every chance you get. Um, you know, Hopefully your instructor didn't tell you that. If they did, I'm telling you, that's not the way to be. But it's important to understand that, that you need to coordinate that stuff uh, between the engine and truck in order to have the best outcome. Uh, not only for the community, but for us as firefighters, you know, because God forbid we take the last too soon and then we end up um, getting some of our own folks jammed up or burnt or, uh, or uh, you know, something else happens um, as a result of not coordinating those things. So um, kind of at the end of the end of the presentation for tonight, we're coming up on an hour. Um, I appreciate everybody tuning in tonight. Um, you know, this this podcast will air um, April 21st, Friday before FDIC. Uh, looking forward to teaching Vent Inner Search again this year um, at FDIC. I think this will be our 13th year of teaching uh, F VES at a, hot, at a hot site. Very fortunate this year to be able to use the brand new IFD uh, Fire Academy for that, for our class. We're going to be um, holding the class at the uh, brand new three-story uh, burn building that we we were fortunate enough to be able to uh, design and order. Uh, so we will be a live fire class this year. Uh, if you listen to this podcast before FDIC, unfortunately the class is full, it's sold out. Um, so I'm sorry for that. Um, but, you know, if, if you wanna have us out, you know, you know we do travel. Um, I have my hooks and hoses uh, fire training Facebook page. I encourage everybody to go to that um, like follow uh, on behalf of the hooks and hoses podcast and the fire engineering network. Uh, this is Eric Dryman. Thanks for tuning in and uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Everybody take care.